Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me today is Emily McKiernan. Emily, how are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? Doing well. No Jasmine this week. There's no me last week. Uh, Lamar Allen, who sat in for me, said uh, he was going to replace me, but that didn't happen. I replaced Jasmine with you, so... There well, there go. we go. Yeah, no, you're just sitting in this week, and I appreciate you. Uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of issues across the state, including something that Jasmine talked about last week, the Palestinian protests that have come to Louisville. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Mitch McConnell in, in, in Washington, D.C., blocking the January 6th commission. We're going to talk about Daniel Cameron and a search warrant commission. And, and Emily, you have an update about Justice Fest that went on in, in Louisville this week. Uh, and then we, have, of course, have a COVID update and a few quick hits. So... Without any further ado, Emily, you're here. Emily McKiernan is a teacher in uh, the JCPS system at Southern High School. Was it, is that the name of it now? I know it's changed like a few times. We are Southern High School Magnet Career Academy, okay, <laughs> occasionally. Very, very good, very good. And and you're an English teacher at at Southern, right? Am I right about that? I am. I I was an English teacher at Southern. I have a new job starting next year. I will be leading our transition to the freshman class so i will be teaching a freshman seminar course that teaches life skills and culture about our school all right well very cool that's news to me so i guess you're out of school uh as of like a couple days ago and that's officially your job now so congrats on that Emily's very active in uh, jcta uh does some lobbying on behalf of her union there uh so it's very very well uh informed on the issues that are happening here in kentucky um, yeah, anything you want to say about, you know, JCPS or JCTA or your work in the legislature before we get started here? Um, I am a member of the JCTA Board of Directors, and I am also on the JCPS Future State Committee uh, regarding technology and use in the classroom. Yeah, very cool. Yes, well, Emily is Emily's ready for this. So uh, let's let's get right into it. Let's talk a little bit about Louisville and Palestine. So Jasmine touched on this last week, but but Louisville has seen several pre-Palestine protests over the past few weeks, and a few of them were actually quite large. So on Saturday, the largest protest on this issue, this, you know, I guess this cycle uh, occurred, and the Courier-Journal uh, estimated the march at about 300 participants. So if you haven't, like, been paying attention to international relations in the past couple of months, the actual conflict in the Middle East is is kind of, you know, beyond being way beyond the scope of this specific show. But, but in the past couple of weeks, uh, Israeli rockets have killed about 240 people in Gaza, and Hamas rockets have killed about 20 people in Israel. Um, and, and really, I, I want to talk about this because it is an emerging national issue that is it is coming to Louisville, and the dynamics of the Israel-Palestine issue are changing in a really big way. I don't know, uh, the Israeli pr- Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he, he grew very close to the Republican Party really before Donald Trump was president and really has basically become a Republican, which is very different than previous Israeli PMs who are very bipartisan in their outreach. And there are very, very you know strong pro-Israel Democrats in America's history reaching back to the beginning of Israel as a nation. Meanwhile, the PLO, they have been very successful in reaching out to the Black Lives Matter movement. And it kind of appears to me that the Israel Israel and Palestine are, are kind of transcending their traditional place as an issue for federal politics, which, you know, many just Jewish people and Arab Americans care passionately about. And, and they're kind of we're moving into the space where officeholders across the spectrum may have to have a good answer as to their position on uh, the Israel-Palestine issue. And from a local standpoint, it does appear that Palestine uh, advocacy for Palestine is really on the rise 
And then meanwhile, Jews in Louisville have a very have been a very important political force for a long time. I, you know, I don't know. I don't really want to talk about like my specific stance on the Israel Palestine issue. Uh, violence is bad, and I hope that part ends. Uh, and I, I also really hope that the conflict delivers justice to everybody. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see how this issue impacts local politics. So, so Emily, have you know, as a teacher, has this issue come up more in class than you have seen in previous years? Uh, so I was actually going to point out that my kids actually brought it up to me. And one of the weird things was they were like, can you quickly explain the Israeli-Palestinian conflict <laughs> thing? And I was like, uh, explain it, yes. Quickly, no. Yeah. And then they were like, so is this new? And I was trying to explain, like, no, I, like this is something I remember from my childhood. Um, and I remember one of my teachers trying to explain it to me. And I went to a Catholic school. Um, and so I believe the, the teachers talking to me were very pro-Israel, very obviously so. And it wasn't until I got to college that I was like, oh, this is a really dynamic issue mm-hmm. that I do not know enough about to have a solid yeah. uh, opinion on. But I think you're absolutely right that um, people are being asked to have an opinion now. I mean, and you see celebrities like have an opinion and then pull it back. Like Mark Ruffalo got dragged by Disney and was <laughs> basically told, hey, you can't say genocide and stuff like that. And he had to issue a retraction of what he was talking about. Yeah. Uh, uh, previously had a pro Israel tweet and then had to delete it. Yeah. That, that part of it's really interesting to me. It, it does seem like, like it's become partisan. And of course, a lot of celebrities are Democrats, but you know, is Israel as a cause has been something that a lot of celebrities, especially like Jewish celebrities have been behind for a really long time. And it is much more dynamic. Yeah. Where, uh, I mean, I think advocacy for Palestinian rights is, was kind of a fringy issue for a while where it was like almost like countercultural to be pro Palestine and anti-Israel. And now it's, it's like the emerging stance of like black lives matter to be very, very, pre or pro Palestine liberation. And, you know, Louisville, of course, as one of the hotbeds of Black Lives Matter advocacy and and a place that really the whole country was looking at, it's no surprise that it's kind of come here. And and the way that it kind of interacts with longstanding uh, Jewish communities that have been here who have been pro-Israel, not all of them, of course, not every Jew is pro-Israel and not every Jewish person uh, is, is defined by by that nation's policy, but there have been a lot of very pro-Israel Jewish people across the city. I mean, John Yarmouth is a Jewish person. He's always had a take on the Palestine and Israel issue that's that's complex, that does need to be kind of teased out. And so it is kind of like one of those things where people do seem to be caring more about it now in different kinds of ways uh, that requires people to kind of think hard about this issue. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, do you do you think it'll be an issue in in kind of like more local politics going forward in the way that kind of local p- people have to answer about like issues like abortion that they also don't really have much impact on? I think that it will. And a large part of it, uh, and, and this is me coming at it from the type of school that I teach at, we are a landing site for immigrants. Yeah, absolutely. Louisville is a major landing site for immigrants. And from the school that I work at, we're a landing site for newcomer kids. That means they leave the newcomer academy mm-hmm. as as immigrants and come into my school. Immigrants kind of come in cycles and they come from different areas depending on the year and things like that. Um, and we have kind of an uptick in kids from the Middle East right now. And um, I'm not sure it could be related to this. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And I think as we have uh, a larger presence of more Muslim people living in our city, we'll see this broad 
to the forefront more frequently. No doubt. Yeah, because it is a really big issue in the whole Middle East and, and really, honestly, the whole world, but but definitely in the Middle East in a bigger way than almost anywhere else. All right. Yeah, that's something we're definitely tracking. Jasmine talked about it last week. And, you know, I follow international relations and, and I wanted to talk about it. So there you go. There's there's my thoughts on it as well. So let's move on to talk a little bit about Mitch McConnell trying to block the January 6th commission. All right. So, Emily, the attack on the United States Capitol on January 6th was really, I think, a low point for the whole country. And Democrats and some Republicans have been pushing for a commission in the vein of the 9-11 commission to investigate what happened. Emily, did you have a copy of the 9-11 commission report at any point in your life? I did not. I do recall, like, watching some of it. I was I was 16 when 9/11 happened, so yeah. I watched some of the stuff, but I didn't have the actual commission in front of me at any uh, point. We we are we go back and forth, and I I tell you that you're old because you're like you know 18 months older than me or something like that. But I so I, I think I was 14 when 9/11 happened. But yeah, I think the commission book came out a few years later, and that was when I turned into a huge nerd. And I definitely remember like going to Barnes and Noble and buying it. And it's still somewhere at my parents' house. And it was like a huge bestseller for a while. It was like, I can even picture the cover. It was like, you know, red, white, and blue, but like a navy blue and a dark red. And it was like the 9-11 commission, very like 2003 aesthetics on on the cover uh, with all the recommendations. But yes, uh, that was something that happened in 9-11. And and Democrats are pushing, and, and some Republicans are pushing for a similar type commission to investigate the January 6th attack on our country. So the proposal to do this actually originated in the House. And a couple of weeks ago, the Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, he authorized John Katko, who's a Republican from New York, to actually negotiate the details with Democrats. But once the deal was struck, Kevin McCarthy actually then opposed the deal. So Katko continued pushing for the commission and the bill to create the commission did pass the House. I I don't think anybody was super surprised by Kevin McCarthy acting like an idiot uh, because that's kind of what he does. Uh, I mean, were you surprised that Kevin McCarthy said one thing and then did another? Absolutely not. <laughs> not, not in the slightest. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's kind of how that guy operates. Uh, so anyways, I just moved to uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate after the bill passed the House to create this commission. You know, on January 6th, I remember very specifically Mitch McConnell pushing back hard against Republicans who try to sow doubt on the presidential elections. So, I mean, I I thought that there might be a chance that he might actually support the commission. And, you know, everybody knows my thoughts about Mitch McConnell. I'm not a fan of him, and I don't think uh, many people listening to the show probably are either. You're probably not, Emily. I'm going to go ahead on it. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, not at all. No, not fact, at all. The last time his house was graffitied, I made sure to drive past just so I could see it in person. See, yeah. Uh, but, but you know, I do think it's worth it to say when people who I don't like do a good thing. And, and I did think that that was good. Like, I, you know, I remember there being like, I'm not proud that Mitch McConnell's my senator, but I am less ashamed than usual that this is happening. Um, so, yes, that was what happened on January 6th. But yeah, he did not end up supporting the commission. So last Wednesday, Mitch McConnell said he did not support the commission because he called it, quote, slanted and unbalanced. Uh, Just again, uh, the (laughs) proposal was negotiated between Republicans and Democrats to try to come up with something that was bipartisan that everybody could live with. Uh, So, you know, calling it slanted and uh, unbalanced is not super fair, I don't think. So right now, Democrats are hoping to get 60 votes in favor of the bill. But obviously, that's a lot harder with Mitch McConnell standing in the way. Um, You know, they could end the filibuster. And I do know that there's been pressure placed on the two more moderate senators, Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, who are kind of the defenders of the filibuster right now to try to end it about this issue. And they're the ones that are kind of trying to whip uh, up 60 votes, 10 Republicans to vote for it. So this is kind of still up in the air. 
But yeah, I mean, the thing that's important for this show is that Mitch McConnell is a constant disappointment. But this is a little interesting as Mitch McConnell originally did show at least a small amount of courage in standing up to Trump after Joe Biden won the presidential election. And, and, you know, as we're thinking about reasons why Mitch McConnell might have done this, I think Senator John Thune of South Dakota might have said the quiet part out loud when he said, quote, anything that gets us rehashing the 2020 election, I think, is a day lost on being able to draw contrast between us uh, and the Democrats, quote, very radical left wing agenda. I think I said quote there. So double unquote uh, about that. So so, yeah, you know, it kind of seems like this is just a cynical plot to avoid talking more about Trump and talking about something that makes the Republicans look bad. So, Emily, I don't know. What, what do you think? Are there questions that are unanswered about January 6th that you as a citizen would like to have answered? And, and do you think a commission would actually help anything? Are there questions that I want answered? Yes. One of them is how many of the people that are receiving government money as elected legislators, they receive a payroll from my taxes. um, How many of them uh, participated and helped people get in the doors? Because if you participate in attack on America, you don't get to represent America anymore. Like that's just kind of where I am with it. If, if, if if you are um, elected to represent Americans and you decided to help insurrectionists, who were carrying a foreign flag, the Confederate States of America was a, was a foreign country. And that flag was inside the White House like that for the first time ever. The only other time that the White House has been sieged like that was by like the Canadians who said sorry <laughs> and rebuilt it. Uh, so, um, yeah, if you're, if you're going to be an elected person and then you're going to participate in the downfall of our country in some capacity, yeah, I want answers to that, but I'm also very cognizant that there's a lot of pomp and, pomp and circumstance with commissions. I'd rather there just be charges yeah, and investigated as charges. Yeah, th- that's kind of, I think, the vein that they, they think a lot of the answers will come out. So there have been, I think, hundreds at this point of people who have been charged uh, uh, in their, you know, with their... Uh, you know, action on January the 6th. And and I do think a lot of answers will come out in the criminal, you know, in the jury process, in the trial process. But uh, yeah, I think a commission uh, kind of gives you a vein to answer some of these more esoteric questions, like who opened the door for who? Like, it, you know, that's not something that will, uh, it may come out in some of these trials. That's not a central question in all of these trials. Like the trials are about the individuals who are on trial and not about like the larger movement, which is something that a commission could probably answer. But yeah, I think that your point is really well taken. There is some good evidence and some hypotheses out there about like more radical members of the Republican Party who were aiding and abetting uh, members of this insurrection. You know, those those are not known for sure. But if you don't investigate it, that causes a lot of problems. Uh, And the fact that Republicans are standing in the way of that, I think it's either a political calculation that it looks worse for them to have this talked about more than to clear their name about of the names of people who may or may not have like opened the door for some of these people. Um, But yeah, I think that that's that that's the thing. They all they also might be just afraid of the answers about some of these more radical people. So that that's that's really tough. Yeah. And and Mitch McConnell, you know, this is very much like on on very specific brand for him, even though, you know, he does have some central. I I, a lot of people say he doesn't believe in anything. I I don't think that I've been following him for a really long time. You know, I don't think he's anti-American. I think he very clearly like stands up for the country when, you know, things like things like uh, the election, like he does believe in in elections uh, at the core of his person and the core of his being. But but like when asked to actually stand up, 
uh, and do something about it, um, he's going to falter. Yeah. Part of it, too, is that um, I don't think Mitch McConnell wants a civil war. Yeah. And I think that he was like, let's let's settle down now, y'all. Let's, you know, let, eh, the election happened. Let's just go ahead and accept the new president, because at the at, at, at the base, a, a civil war part two would, would be catastrophic. But also he likes to play games where he knows he can win. And I don't think he knows if he can win that game or not. So he'd rather play it safe and not have a civil war. Yeah. And well, then in talking about like my students that come from, you know, different countries, uh, that that January 6th terrified them sure. for a lot of my students that are refugees because they're like, oh, no, again. And I was like, again. And because for them, they were like government building attack. Now we're going to have a new dictator or something. I was like, oh, that's like completely outside of my perspective. But it was something that absolutely triggered them. And they were completely traumatized by the entire thing. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's probably the right reaction to have. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, I don't I don't don't ever want anybody to experience trauma, but I do think like it's also not super healthy to see something incredibly traumatizing like that and kind of like walk away and say it's more of like a, you know, what there was a representative who said something like it's a it was like a tourist group or whatever. Like, that's just that's insane. (laughs) And listen, I've taken students on tours before and my students behave better than that. It's all I'm going to say about if it was a tourism group. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes. Mitch McConnell, uh, a very large disappointment. Um, yeah, so these are two topics that are, are, you know, a little bit of a stretch for us. We talked about international relations and federal politics. But yeah, let's get into the state of Kentucky and stuff that's going on here. So Daniel Cameron, our attorney general, he has a search warrant commission that finally met. So we're updating this story from a few weeks ago when Jasmine talked about Daniel Cameron's commission, which was announced actually at, that it would exist seven months ago. But didn't really get moving until Jake Ryan of KYCIR asked him about it a couple of weeks ago. Um, on Monday, the group actually met for the first time. Monday will be May the 24th, 2021. At the meeting, uh, it was announced that the task force would take about seven months and meet seven times at locations all across the state. So Daniel Cameron said his excuse for waiting until now was that the legislative session had to be compu- completed because he expected for laws to change. Um, you know... While he announced this commission before the legislative session started, so they definitely could have gotten started on it. I think that that's at least a little fair because there were laws that changed uh, and there were other proposals for changes at the law at the state level that didn't happen. So there was a lot that kind of did need to shake out before this commission could kind of get going. Um, SB4 is, of course, the big no knocks bill. Uh, I say big, small no knocks bill that uh, Senator uh, Senate President Robert Stivers um, agree, agree to let pass through the legislature. It is not Brianna's law, but you know, you can go back and listen to all of our shows about that. If you want to hear our thoughts on that issue. So Damon Preston is the only person on, uh, this, this task force who is a public defender. Um, and he said that he hoped to be quote, a voice of the people who are being searched unquote. He also called the task force out a little bit since most of the people on it represent people who are actually going to be doing the searching and not those being searched. Um, so I, that's not so surprising to me because, you know, Daniel Cameron uh, is works, uh, you know, in a law enforcement capacity as attorney general and is a conservative Republican who favors uh, cops probably more than than uh, he. Yeah, he favors cops. We'll just leave it there. Um, okay. I don't really know what to expect from this task force, right? I, I don't even know whether to say it's... I, I don't know if I can say it's a bad thing. I don't know if I... Definitely don't know if I can call it a good thing. Or I don't know. That might might leave, like, neutral there. 
Um, I don't know. I don't know how to think about that. So, uh, Emily, what do you think? Do you think that the search warrant commission is a good idea? Well, so first, I actually kind of have a question about it because um, it said that it's going to meet all across the state. But in looking at the meeting locations, there's Frankfurt, 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 then Somerset, Bowling Green, Louisville, and Richmond. Um, and so that tells me we're not going across the state because across the state would be Paducah to Pikeville. <laughs> we're and, sticking we're sticking to 65 and, and 75, I guess. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and it, I just have a question. Why are we going to travel around the state, but like not too far? Yeah. We're going to travel, but like not a lot. That's, um, a good, that's a good question. Very good question. Well, and so because ostensibly one would say that you would travel to different locations to allow the public to participate in this in some capacity. But if you're not going any further west than Bowling Green or any further east than Richmond, that's those are not very far from the central Kentucky. This is off topic, but you are uh, also citing something that's very interesting to people who live and the reaches, the farthest reaches east and west in the state, which is uh, you just listed the locations of eastern Kentucky and western Kentucky University. And yes, those are not really eastern or western Kentucky. But yeah, you're exactly right. They could have had one in Paducah or Henderson or, you know, Hopkinsville or something like that. And they could have had one in and Pikeville or, or Ashland or, or Moorhead or something like that, too. And, and they didn't. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly how much public uh, input will be received by this group. Um, yeah, and, and that's a, a good question, I think, whether or not there will be a, a, a chance for people to make their voice heard. Because, yeah, it does feel a little one-sided. It seems like most of the people who are going to be on the commission are uh, aligned with law enforcement and not necessarily with criminal defense, with the one exception being Damon Preston. Well, and so Damon Preston stands alone as the person representing the public Mm -hmm. while everybody else represents not the public. Yeah. Um, And so if we're hopefully they'll allow public input at some capacity, but I don't know. What does that look like? Is it Mm -hmm. similar to when legislators ask people to testify at uh, committee meetings and things like that? Because you don't always get in. Yeah. Even if you represent as an elected person inside of your organization, you don't always get in. So um, I, I, I think this looks like first it should have been done sooner. If it were me and I really wanted to affect change, I would have done it before the legislative session so that we could take the information from the task force yeah. and use it to draft bills. But that's not what we did. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that we, we probably could have gotten something done before then that would have could have guided the legislative process. I mean, as it was, I think that, you know, we tried to make SB4 pretty bipartisan, but actually having a good commission that came up with recommendations, like that's kind of how the process is supposed to work. And, and of course it isn't because we, you know, the Republicans don't have to listen to the Democrats, uh, but they did feel like they had to do something on this issue. So they did. They did something, but not all of what uh, most people wanted, I think, is fair to say. Um, yeah. And, and you know, Daniel Cameron also didn't have to convene this commission. He could have just like let the search warrants issue just like you know, not not Peter out, but he could have just ignored it and wouldn't really probably have faced many, if any, consequences for doing that. But he is actually convening it. Um, so I, I don't know. That could be good. It could be that something good comes out of this. But I think the fact that most of the people running the show are aligned with people who would be executing or writing search warrants means that uh, there's at least some chance that the laws will get worse uh, due to this commission. So 
Definitely something we're going to be watching. I know Jasmine's in, interested in this very, very much. So uh, at, all the way back at the beginning of, of when we first started talking about the Breonna Taylor issue, the search warrant something thing was a thing that, that Jasmine highlighted uh, up front. So I think that that's something uh, that she's very passionate about. And we'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. So that's the search warrant task force. Uh, Emily, tell me what I need to know about Justice Fest. Okay, so Justice Fest was a culminating event for our Justice Now Learning Hub, which is in JCPS. So um, we have two Kentucky Teachers of the Year participating in this. The first one is Nyree Clayton Taylor, and she was the 2019 uh, Kentucky Elementary Teacher of the Year, and Matt Kaufman, the 2020 Kentucky High School Teacher of the Year. Um, and they began the Justice Now Learning Hub as a way to create cohorts uh, of JCPS students and teachers to come together to look at different societal issues from education justice, environmental justice, criminal justice, and different things like that. And so Justice Fest was just this past weekend. um, And I know that uh, Representative Attica Scott and Senator Morgan McGarvey both attended. If others attended, I just missed their social media posts. But um, they were able to go and listen to the work the students have been working on since about August or September. Um, And I was um, able to work with the group at Southern High School for a little bit, which is where I teach. Uh, But there were all kinds of things. We had some presentations about the Crown Act, so make sure that students can have natural hair at school. And um, students are putting on a, uh, a marathon to honor Brianna Taylor that goes through a number of very influential areas through Louisville. Uh, and then at my school, they have the Justice Express that they want to have, which is a mobile bus that would have supplies you could use during a protest, such as keeping things uh, on hand in case you get pepper sprayed or having water and snacks and different things like that. So overall, it was a way to um, ha- connect kids and connect educators and have them work on real-world problems because um, a lot of our kids have very big questions, especially after the year that we've had. Mm-hmm. They have enormous questions. A lot of the times um, I'll look at my students and say, I don't know, but I'd be happy to go look up more information about that for you. And this was a great time for the kids to watch the teachers help them solve a very specific issue. And also um, there's this idea of performing school And the idea is to be compliant, but the actual goal of school should be to prepare you for the rest of of your life. And so this is preparing them for the rest of their lives. Find a problem and fix the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think that this is a great thing. Um, You know, I credit uh, the education I got at JCPS for making me into the person I am today. Uh, And I, you know, if you like this podcast, uh, it would not exist without a hands-on education that really approached real world issues that happened uh, all the way back in like the 2000s. So, you know, I, that that's very important to me. And it's really good to hear that it sounds like it's gotten even better. And some of this stuff, th- this specific event sounds really cool. And I wish there had been something like this when I was in school. And I'm really glad to hear that it, it does exist. So that's, yeah, very neat. And we also, uh, one of the biggest sponsors was the Kentucky Derby Festival. So it is very, very Louisville because (laughs) we got the Derby to sponsor it. Very good. Uh, All right. Last thing on the list before quick hits is a COVID update. So COVID is, (laughs) it still exists. It's still out there. But, you know, after several weeks of plateau, it does seem like cases have decreased. Uh, It's really, cases have gone down for three weeks in a row, meaning that, you know, we might be exiting that plateau. 
It's still not a substantial decline over the past month, though, so we might have to wait a while to see really what's going on. We have that big map that says, you know, the status of all those counties. And I just remember back in the winter when we were just seeing every county that was as red as could be for like months on end. Uh, now, though, we are down to just two red counties, Rock, Castle County and Owen County. Um, so th- they've actually moved around a little bit. Neither one of those is, is extraordinarily large. I don't think either one of them are necessarily super small either. Um, but both of them are also both just slightly above the 25 cases per 100,000. Nobody's in like the 50 or 100 zone that we were seeing uh, in, in days before this. There's only about 30 counties that are even left in the orange zone, which is before red. And there's even four counties that are green, which means that they have had zero cases in a week. The state's overall incidence rate is less than 7.5 per 100,000, and the positivity rate is down to about 2.61%, and, and it's really kind of going down. It's, it's been going down for a little bit here. Louisville, though, as a city, remains in a bit of a plateau. There were 592 cases in Louisville last week. No week has been below 577 since the start of the year, and only two weeks have had more than 700. So we've been kind of living between 575 and 700 since since March uh, and have not yet to see a, a decrease from there. Lexington, though, has seen a pretty substantial decrease. Three straight weeks, they've dropped from 261 the, the, in the last week of April to 142 last week. So that's a 40, 46% decline in a month, only about half the cases that were there um, last month. So in terms of cases, we are c- certainly going in the right direction, even though the city where we choose to live is is kind of in the same spot that we have been recently. Vaccinations, though, have ticked up again. Uh, This week, we saw 74,553 vaccinations. This week actually includes one extra day because there was an issue with the federal database, but uh, that's up from about 50,000 the week before. So even when controlling for that extra day, that's still a pretty significant uptick. Uh, We're nowhere near the increases we saw in the vaccine opened up to everyone, but it's a pretty encouraging sign. Probably a lot of that has to do with with, uh, students, people from 12 to 17 who are able to get the vaccine recently. Um, And I do think that a lot of that is going to be happening in schools in the next couple of weeks, too. So we'll probably see an increase there as well. Louisville, which dropped out of the top five counties for vaccinations recently, has actually did see a pretty substantial uptick in vaccinations. 14.3 thousand people received the first shot last week. And Jefferson County is actually up to 50% of residents with at least one shot. So half the people here in Louisville with one shot. It's also good because more than 80% of people who are 65 or over have received a first shot across the country or across the state, while the population from 30 to 39 who has received a shot, uh, at least one shot, is at 41%. So half of that, although that's an increase. And, and people who are 30-somethings are catching up to the people who are 40-something, who are only at 47%. So good for us. We did our job. Um, uh, geriatric millennials. Yes, geriatric millennials are at it again. Yeah. Uh, nationally, though, uh, you know, cases continue to fall pretty precipitously. There's now about 25,000 cases per day in the whole United States, which is the lowest amount since the initial rise in cases back in April. As of right now, there is really no indication that the numbers are leveling off, so we may see an even further decline, and I think that actually that's probably pretty likely. Nationally, also, uh, deaths remain slightly elevated, uh, which is not great. But we talked about this when cases were on the way up. Deaths are a lagging indicator. You have to get sick before you can die. And there were a lot of people who already got sick. And unfortunately, some of them are going to die. And as fewer and fewer people continue to get sick, 
people that the death rate will likely trail off um, as we as we move forward. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems like this actually might be over kind of soon, which is just kind of crazy to think about. Emily, how, how has your life changed the past month in terms of the way that you've been approaching, like going out and seeing people or doing doing activities? Um, so I actually like saw my mom on Mother's Day. So it was a big one. Yeah. Um, even though we're all vaccinated. But I feel better when I'm at the gym, even though there are people that like their mask clips down. I'm like, well, we're well, hopefully you're vaccinated. <laughs> uh, but the weirdest thing. Um, so I go to the gym at Planet Fitness and they decided that if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. And so I look around and there are people without masks on. I'm like, OK, that's legal. That's fine. That's yeah. legal. It's fine. It's OK. But it just feels so weird because I still have that weird thing where if I watch a TV show, I'm like, where are their masks? Like, yeah, absolutely. I, and, and so that's uh, it's it's weird to me to see people without masks now. And I think it's going to be a while before that's normal for me. Yeah, I, I go to the gym in my garage. So I'm I'm exiting quarantine more swole than everybody else because everybody else had to actually go to the gym or have to deal with the mask and everything. And I didn't. But uh, I do go to the grocery store and that exact same thing happened to me there where it is like people are walking around in the Highlands Kroger without masks on for the first time in more than a year. Uh, and you know, being uh, from this part of town where people are very compliant with the mask mandate, uh, it was very, uh, I felt pretty safe in there because, you know, there, there weren't that many people who, or there were zero people not wearing masks. And that is definitely over. There are definitely people who are choosing not to because they're vaccinated and that's the rule now. Um, but yeah, are you have at least one kid that doesn't qualify for the vaccine yet, yes. right? My and, daughter is eight. So she's, she's unvaccinated. My son got he was the first appointment the first day they could get a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, a, a, as a parent of at least one kid who can't get vaccinated, how has that been? Like having to deal with the fact that there are, in fact, a lot of people now that aren't wearing their masks and you have a child that, that can't get vaccinated. So um, we were just starting to feel better about being in public with her um, because it, it, she also, when she was little, had RSV and still had some breathing issues from that yeah just, it's not like terrifying or anything but it is it is like in the back of my mind whenever we're out and i was just getting to the point where i'm like ah oh, we can go to target like we went shopping and you know because target's her favorite place relatable <laughs> um and you know now i'm like oh now people don't have masks on again and she's wearing hers my kids are very good about wearing their masks and she'll still wear hers but i'm very cognizant that the mask protects people like other than you. So when mm-hmm. you wear a mask, you're protecting other people. And I like to think that the places that I go to, the people without masks on are genuinely vaccinated, but I don't have that same safety of knowing that there's some pro- level of protection because yeah. they could be lying. And I yeah. don't know. I mean, I, I like we live in the Highlands cause I'd live that not, not that far from you. And there's a house up and around the corner that, that has a sign that says COVID's fake masks for no one and stuff like that. And I'm like, are you lost? <laughs> but, but uh, so I, I hope that person is not going to Kroger with no mask on yeah, or anybody else in their family. So it is kind of nerve wracking. And I think for a lot of people that have kids under the age of 12, because it, there was this whole thing, well, let's open up. And I'm like, okay, I still have a kid that's unvaccinated. And my son is half vaccinated. He's mm. still got one more to go, but that's, it's nerve wracking. And then from like a teacher standpoint, 
I was like, hey, CDC, could you have waited to the end of the school year so I didn't have to have questions for my students? Because I've got kids that work at Kroger and stuff. And they're like, well, I'm mm-hmm. vaccinated because I had to for work. And I was like, I understand the words you're saying. The rule says you have to wear the mask at school, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely seemed like that that um, the CDC making that ruling. I feel like, you know, last week, Lamar had very much the same thing to say that you did, Emily, about having a kid that wasn't able to get vaccinated. I also have a child that's not able to get vaccinated, but she's, you know, really small. Uh, and so was really unlikely to get it anyway, because that age group is really, really rare uh, to even catch COVID. But uh, it isn't impossible. And so it is still pretty nerve wracking for me as well. But as you know, the parent of children who are not able to get vaccinated, you know, he talked a lot about how like rescinding the mask mandate uh, and the governor doing that wasn't probably the best idea. And I, I tend to agree with that. But I also have to accept the fact that like Andy Bashir is dealing with a set of uh, political realities uh, in the state that he's governing, um, where it would have been very difficult for him to go against the CDC recommendation, which was to remove the mask mandate. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wish, you know, I guess I wish that we hadn't, but I feel like I do understand why we kind of had, why Andy Bashir felt like he had to. Um, and it's just another way that this whole thing is very unfortunate that it's become very political. And instead of trying to keep each other safe, we're trying to score points um, and get people elected. So, yeah, uh, yeah, very nerve wracking. But at the same time, I definitely think I feel better than I did at any point in the past year about COVID. Cases are certainly seem to be disappearing. Um, numbers are going down everywhere. Louisville is going to get there eventually. I can feel it. Uh, more than half of the people in the state have gotten va- or more than half the people in the city have gotten at least one vaccination. And it seems like more are on the way. So anyways, there haven't been too many uh, policy shifts with the state with respect to COVID. Although Governor Bashir did do a pre- didn't do a press conference on Monday. He did one on Tuesday. Uh, but yeah, that was like the longest break he's ever taken uh, since this entire thing kind of started. So, uh, you know, uh, that makes me feel like it's also almost over. Yeah. One one piece of news is that Moderna is asking the FDA to approve their vaccine for 12 to 17 year olds as well. That would make it even easier for kids to get the kids in that age bracket to get vaccinated. Um, right now, they can only take Pfizer, which isn't available everywhere because of the cold storage issue. But yeah, so that's also good news. And I did see something that was a little late breaking that at least one uh, hospital in Louisville was going to mandate that people get the vaccine to stay employed. So that is that's a big move. Honestly, I hope people other other places do that uh, more. I think that, you know, that would be great. But um, we'll see if that actually happens that way. I think that that's probably the best way to make sure that people get vaccinated. So that's it for COVID. Continue to be safe. You know, if you are vaccinated, like you mentioned, the CDC just says that you can go without a mask, but I would say just kind of do what makes you comfortable. Like, don't feel bad if you're wearing a mask. If you wear a mask, like, don't let people look at you funny. Don't let people say you're bad. Like, you're doing it because you want to feel good. You want to feel comfortable, and everybody deserves to feel comfortable. Um, you know. And we've spent the last year making fashion statements with our masks. Now I have one less fashion statement item. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my, my wife, like, got this dress at Goodwill that, like, had this weird cape that went with it. And so she, like, took the cape and had my neighbor, like, make a mask. So it's, like, a cool, like, dress-mask combo. So she really likes it. So I wonder if the next time she wears that dress, which might be, like, two years from now, if she doesn't, like break it out until like you know two decades from now when we are replaying 2021 maybe people just like wear masks as like oh remember when our parents had to do that or whatever yeah 
yeah. Yeah. And also one other thing, like another reason you might want to wear a mask is just to be like in solidarity with with your kids or other kids around you. Like, yeah, if you're a 12 to 17 year old and all of a sudden like that's a really awkward age anyway. And if you're the one person who has to wear a mask in your family, that sucks. Like you're that's another way you feel othered or like you're different than everybody else, which is not a really great time to be feeling those feelings. And if you want to wear a mask so that those kids feel more comfortable, I think that's a good reason to do it, too. So whatever reason you have to wear a mask, feel free to do it. I think you should feel free to do it. Uh, but yeah, if you if you you know you just you're a vaccinated 35 year old who lives by themselves and wants to go out like, yeah, you're allowed to do that now. Like, that's a thing that you, you can certainly get away with. But, you know, the last thing I'll say is if you do qualify, please, please, please get the vaccine. I know that probably everybody listening to this probably has already done it, but also encourage your friends and family who may be more reticent to do that as well. All right. Before we get out of here, just two, uh, three quick hits that I want to talk about. So first of all, Emily, there will be no state charges in the killing of David McAtee, who's the barbecue man that the National Kentucky National Guard killed last June. So that uh, was an announcement from Tom Wine, who's the Jefferson Commonwealth attorney. But the FBI investigation is still ongoing. Uh, yeah. How did how did you receive this news? And what did you think when you read it? I... There was one of the family members quoted that was like, we didn't expect justice anyway, but we still wanted it. And that's kind of where I am with it. Like, I, that, that, it's exactly what I expected to have happen, but it's still wrong. Yeah. Um, and I can only hope that the FBI comes up with something different. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. You know, Thomas Wine also took into account some really egregious statements by uh, one of the officers who's involved in uh, the killing of David McAtee, um, who had some really messed up things to say about, you know, pepper balls, I think was what it was. Um, so... You know, I don't know. It's it's been really ugly and awful this entire time. And I, I echo your statements. Exactly. The, that would have been justice to see something happen there. And it didn't, um, which is unfortunately not surprising. Uh, Kentucky's other U.S. Senator, Rand Paul. Uh, we talked about Mitch McConnell earlier, but Rand Paul was was sent a suspicious package that contained a white powder. So the FBI and Capitol Police in D.C. there said that the substance was not dangerous, but Senator Paul blamed pop singer Richard Marks for the threat after Mr. Marks tweeted his mocking appreciation for Rene Boucher, who's the man who broke uh, many of Senator Paul's ribs. Uh, I don't know. Weird things seem to happen to Rand Paul all the time. And that story just has a what year is it feel? Because there's Richard Marks. And remember when everybody was getting packages with strange white substances? Yeah, that was also like 2002 or something. The anthrax scare stuff. Yeah. Yes. I don't. I honestly, I, whenever I heard this, I didn't know who Richard Marks was. I don't know if that makes me like a nerd or cool. Uh, but yes, not not somebody that it was on my radar from before this. Uh, I guess he's a pop singer. There you go. I had had hits in four decades. Uh, there you go. Good for him. Uh, the last quick hit I wanted to mention is that the Louisville um, Metro Council passed a safety ordinance for uh, EMW, well, all abortion clinics, but EMW specifically, which will uh, allow the sidewalk to be cleared as people try to access service there. Yeah, everybody who listens to this likely knows my story about my wife needing an abortion. And uh, yeah, I, I said this uh, before, but like probably the worst part of the entire experience was walking past those people who are truly awful and really just being very, very close to them to the point where they could almost touch you. This safety ordinance is something that's been necessary for a long time. Um, I really, really commend uh, Cassie Chambers Armstrong and Ja'Cory Arthur for being leaders and pushing this forward and getting it done. 
Um, I know that this has been a lot of people working on this, including a lot of people who aren't on the council anymore. Brandon Cohn, who Cassie Chambers Armstrong took over, really was a leader for it before. Um, but this is desperately needed and, and something that I deeply appreciate and I'm glad has happened. Um, so, yeah, any, any thoughts on that? Oh, I, I can't think of a single other place where we would let people be on the sidewalk and harass the people going into it. Um, and I share your sense. I mean, that's a location that I have run past and they won't clear off for a runner even. Um, and they'll yell at you d- depending on what you're wearing. Um, there it's, I find the entire thing absolutely disgusting. Um, and I think it's also worth noting that, um, some of the people that require the services at EMW, um, could have been served in a hospital if, uh, those doctors could get trained in that, but they face death threats from those same people. So it's yeah. really interesting that they like to say that they're pro-life when they would absolutely kill somebody. And there are pro-life activists that have bombed clinics. Yeah. So, it's been, been going on for a very long time uh, with with threats to people's lives who, who do that work. Yeah. All right, Emily. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. This was very fun. I'm glad that you were able to come. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. If you uh, thank you for listening. Wait, I got to do the outro, which is to say, if you would like to reach out to us, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at my old KY pod. We have a Patreon. You can listen to our podcast or whatever podcast app you choose. Jasmine has an Instagram for us now that she keeps up to date. And yeah, you can find us anywhere uh, in uh, across the Internet. Uh, you know where to find us. I suck at doing the outro. Always have. Uh, Jasmine will be back next week to do it. Knock it out of the park. Thank you guys for listening and we will see you next week. <laughs>